Well, good morning, Rivertown. Yeah, you guys are a happy church, aren't you? Yeah, it was awesome to be able to sit down here. I was with uh, Bluntstown this morning, first service, and want to say welcome to all of our campuses. It is absolutely an honor to be able to be with you. I love being in a happy church. I tell my church all the time, we're going to be a happy church and we're going to have fun together. And I've experienced that already this morning with you guys, and it's been awesome to be here. My name is Philip Thurman. I am the founding and lead pastor of Vertical Church in Madison, Mississippi. And I asked this morning at Bloodstown at 8 o'clock, anybody know where Madison, Mississippi is? Anybody here know where Madison or across our campuses? Oh, wow, yeah, okay. Well, nobody there knew where Madison is. Madison is 20 minutes north of our capital city of Jackson, Mississippi. I founded the church there about 15 years ago. And it has been amazing to see what God has done. But I want to say thank you uh, to all of you guys across all of our campuses for what you're doing. You don't even realize the impact that you are having not only in Florida and the Panhandle, but beyond Florida, even to Mississippi, even around the world. In fact, I watch you guys very regularly. Uh, I spend time talking to Paul. And I want to tell you how we guys met. And I want to first as well say thank you. Thank you so much, Rivertown for your investment, for the ways that you do things. We learn from you every week almost. We're watching you and learning how to do things, how to get better, how to learn. And so I'm excited to be with you guys today to carry on week three of helping the next gen win. But I want to tell you how Paul and I met because it was kind of a, a pretty cool way, except it was kind of weird, if I'm just really honest with you. Uh, we went on a trip together to Guatemala, and he was my roommate. You know, when you go on a trip like that, you're never really sure how the guy's going to be as your roommate. So the first night we go to sleep, and Paul decides he's going to sleepwalk on me. And he comes over to my bed and goes, hey, Melody, can I cuddle with you? I'm like, no, no, Paul. This is not Melody. This is Philip. I'm sorry if I gave off any bad vibes, but this is not Melody. Go back to your bed. And do you know he did that for six nights straight? 
No, I'm just kidding. He didn't do that. He did not do that. Don't go accusing your pastor. We've had fun together. But look, really, we were together. We were roommates together there in Guatemala, and we had an incredible time together. I've come to love him as one of my dearest friends. In fact, there are times that I will call him where I'm struggling with an idea or a thought or a concept, a leadership issue, and I'll call Paul, and he's always so gracious. He'll answer the phone. And he'll talk to me and he'll kind of walk me off the ledge or talk to me about this or give me some insight. And hopefully I'm able to do the same for him. Over the last two weeks, he's done a masterful job communicating to you about the passion that he has to develop the next generation of leaders. And little did he know that that was one of the passions that I have in my heart as well. He's been to our campus in Mississippi, so he's able to see some of my team. But about 75% of my team are 15 to 20 years younger than I am. And I know what you're thinking automatically. There's no way that guy's that old. I'm old. But I, and I do have some young leaders. And one of the things that I have a passion for is to help them develop their God-given gifting, their passion in life. And so when Paul called me to say, hey, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're going to do. I was like, man, this is awesome. I, I've got something to say. I feel like there's something that God is going to be able to use in a powerful way. So this morning, I want to kind of launch us all together, get us back together from week one and week two. And if you've not watched week one and week two, can I beg you to please go do that? It's absolutely incredible. But I want to kind of bring the weekend together, this weekend as well, kind of backtracking just a little bit on what Paul said so that we can all be on the same footing, on the same page. Paul gave us two powerful statements about generational ideas. And I want you to look at this first one. We are all shaped by a previous generation. Every single one of us has been impacted, have been shaped by a generation. They've had an impact on our life. And by the way, let me say this as well to those watching online. Um, I am Paul Smith on steroids. I'm going to be all over the page. I talk 900 words a minute. I'm a foreigner, so I'll tell you more about that in a second. So I'm all over the page, so just bear with me. I'm only one weekend. I won't be back next weekend, so you can just kind of endure anything for about an hour and a half, right? Just kidding. I won't be an hour and a half. So he says, we are all shaped by a previous generation. Then number two, he said that we are all someone else's previous generation. Such a powerful truth. And, and last week as I was kind of pondering and thinking on that thought, I was overwhelmed. I thought, man, that's a great word. That, that's something that's so obvious, but yet so many times gets kind of swept under the rug. We don't think about that, that we have become somebody's previous generation. Then he gave us four core essentials that we need to begin to understand about our life. And, and these are principles that Jesus had that he applied in his own life. So as I say at my church, if Jesus has some principles that he's applied to his life, as far as I know, he's the only guy that's come back to life. I'm going to listen to him and I'm going to apply those principles to my life. And little did Paul know but about 20 years ago, as I was starting, 25 years ago, as I was starting in full-time church work, I sat down and began to write out my life plan, where I was going to go, what God was calling me to be about. And this life verse, this verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it's not going to come up. You can write it down and go back and look at it. But this verse became one of the verses that I used to write my life path, my life plan, my life purpose as to where I was going to go. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 2. Verse 52, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and with man. So Paul gave us four major essential core things that we can hang on to. Number one, that we can seek wisdom, that God wants us to grow in wisdom. Now, he also did not know this, but 20 years ago, I started applying the question that he asked his family. What is the wise thing for me to do? 
when it comes to my finances, when it comes to my relationships, when it comes to seeking careers, when it comes to looking at where I need to go or not go, when it comes to developing my resume and all of those things. God, what is the wise thing for me to do? An incredible, incredible statement. So Jesus grew in wisdom. If he grew in wisdom as God's son, perfect, shouldn't we as individual followers of Jesus Christ want to grow in wisdom? Number two, in stature. And I'm going to talk about this word. Paul talked about it as well, and I'll come back to this in a few moments. Then he talks about growing in favor with man, that we come to this place where we grow in favor with man. And I love this, that God does not exempt us from being in relationship with other people, that we have the opportunity, we have the privilege to be in relationships with people who are followers of Jesus, but also to be able to be impacted, to have relationships with people who maybe don't follow God, maybe of different faith, but people that we can do life with so that we can have favor. Jesus thought enough to grow in favor with other people, so should we. And then finally, he closes out with this favor with God. You see, of all the relationships, this is the most important relationship. When this relationship is right, when this relationship is where it needs to be, all other relationships take care of themselves. Thus the reason why we called our church Vertical Church. Because if you are vertical in your relationship with God, if that is right, then all other relationships will take care of of themselves. Well, I want to go back to the second word, stature. And I want to give you the definition that Paul used because I like this definition. And here's the definition. Stature. It is the ability to discern my greater life purpose as I physically mature. Now, this is a huge statement, and I don't want to kind of brush over this. I know Paul talked about it, but setting us up where we're going this morning, I want to make sure that we understand this. Stature is not just simply talking about my physical physique, although I do look very good, don't I? Yeah, thank you. One lady over here said yes. Everybody else kind of like, I don't know about this guy. Um, but, but it's more than just my physical physique. It's more than what I eat or consume. It is my greater purpose in life. Now, here's what I've discovered as a pastor for 25 some odd years. People who are following Jesus and people who are not following Jesus, they all want to know what their greater life purpose is. In fact, I have people all the time when I'm counseling with them, when I'm talking to them, they'll say things like, I just don't know if I'm doing what I was made to do. Or I feel like I am doing what I was made to do, but I'm not really sure about my life purpose. Am I really doing what God wants me to do? That's what I want to do because that's when I've discovered when I'm doing what God is wanting me to do, my greater life purpose, when I'm doing those things in my life, I feel fulfilled. I feel a sense of joy. I feel a sense of pride. I feel a sense of I'm making a difference in the world. So today, as we think about helping the next generation win, I want to address this issue. How are we going to help the next generation get to the place where they can find their greater life purpose? Now, you don't know anything about me, so let me very quickly set up a little bit about myself. I was born in 1967 in the country of East Pakistan. In 1971, our family and one other American family were the only two American families that lived, or foreigners that lived in the country during the War of Independence. In 1971, it became Bangladesh. And I raised, in fact, one of the first flags, the Bengali flag, my mom could sew and stitch. And I got to raise the first national flag of Bangladesh in that country. Well, one day I'm sitting in my office, fast forward now, I've, I've lived there for 18 years. I come to the States to go to college, kind of begin my, my life and career. And I'm sitting in my office last year, fast forward, way fast forward, I'm sitting in my office last year, 
And as I'm sitting in my office, I, I'm, I'm beginning to kind of think about what's going on. And I, I come across a Twitter feed. And on the Twitter feed, there's a statement that catches my eye. That something is happening in the country that I grew up in, in Bangladesh. And so I go to the Twitter feed. I look at that. It then sends me to a news caption. And I go to the news, news agency. And I begin to look on the news agency of what they're saying. And here's what was beginning to happen. I don't know if you know where Bangladesh is, but if you know where the big country of India is, on the east side of India is a little bitty country called Bangladesh. And then surrounding Bangladesh are countries like Cambodia, Vietnam, Burma, that is now known as Myanmar. China is above it, way above it. And, and, and so I began to listen and see things that were going on. My heart is passionate for that country. I speak the language fluently. Can't you tell? I look Bengali. And so I speak the language fluently. I have friends that are still there. I have Muslim friends, Hindu friends, atheist friends. I've got people all walks of life that are there that are basically like my family in Bangladesh because I spent the first 18 years of my life there. So I'm sitting in my office and, and I, I begin to hear about something that was taking place in the country. On August the 25th, 2017, as I'm sitting there, I begin to see this news feed blowing up about Bangladesh. So it caught my eye, so I begin to look at that. And I began to read and I began to see what was taking place. And I was overwhelmed by what was happening in the country that I had grown up in. In fact, numbers were saying some crazy numbers that maybe by the end of 2017 that there would be close to a million refugees that would be coming into Bangladesh. Refugees coming in from Bangladesh. Coming from where? What is going on? And so I began to kind of search and look and here's what I began to discover. That Burma or the country that is now known as Myanmar is predominantly a Buddhist nation. The Buddhist nation has a, a state in it that's called the Rakhine State. It's predominantly Muslim. Almost 90-some-odd percent of the people that live in the Rakhine State of Myanmar are Muslim. They're Islamic faith. And uh, there were some clashes that began to happen between the Rohingya people and the government of Myanmar, the soldiers. And, and so this clash begins to happen. And now the, the soldiers begin to come in. And literally what's taking place is genocide. Soldiers were raping these Rohingya people. They were killing them. They're throwing babies into open graves, burying them alive. They're taking children, throwing them in the fire. And so these Rohingya people, these Muslim people, knowing that Bangladesh was a Muslim country, could come across the border. Some walked 15, 16, 18 days to get to freedom. Some would walk through the mountains. Some would come across the river on a boat and land in Bangladesh. So as I began to listen to this whole idea, this whole issue, God began to, to give me a, a sense of purpose in my life that there was something that I was supposed to do. And so in October, we had a team that was scheduled to go to Bangladesh. And so we loaded up to go to Bangladesh and got on the airplane some 30-some-odd hours later. We land in the capital city of Dhaka. We spend the night. The next morning, we get up, and I send a team up north to go work with some folks. I send a team down south to work with some folks. I get on an airplane by myself with one of my Bengali friends, and we go east to the, uh, to the city called Cox's Bazaar. We got to Cox's Bazaar, got to my hotel, checked in got a driver lined up for the next day so that we could go to the camp and try to see what's going on in the camps. Now, what I did not realize on this day was that the camps are illegal for people that have a tourist visa to be able to come in. Had no idea what was going on, but because I speak Bengali, because I have so many Bengali friends, because I know people in the government uh, that's there in the army and all of that, I thought I would take a chance the next day. So we get in the car, my Bengali friend and myself and our driver, and we begin to drive about an hour and a half trek to the largest refugee camp in the world that nobody even knows a thing about. 
And I get on this road, and we go for about 45 minutes to an hour on this road. And, and we come to the place where we're going to turn off. I had no idea. And we're going to turn off of this main road onto a beaten road. And, and we're going to go on this beaten road for about 45 minutes, a makeshift road, a road that's only big enough for one vehicle, but yet there's cars coming and going. And we, we turn, and as we make the turn, I, I look to my right side on the driver's side, and, and I see a group of people, some sitting on the ground, some standing up, some walking around. And there's, there's a whole hodgepodge of folks. And so I asked my driver, I said, what is going on? Who are all these people? It's too early in the morning for them to be moving. And this is what he says. Those are the latest refugees that have come into Bangladesh. They just came in last night by boat. And they have to come here. They have to get registered. And they have to do that. And they get registered and they get an ID. And that then allows them to move into the refugee camp where they can get food and get their rations and get all of this stuff. And and I asked him, I said, hey, will you stop the car? Can I, can I just get a picture? I, I want to get a picture of these people. I want to talk to some of these people and find out what is going on. I want to hear some of their stories because I've heard the stories online, but I'm just not sure about all of these killings, all this genocide that's taking place. And I made the mistake of walking over to a gentleman. Now, you're going to see this picture on the side screens, this picture of a, of a guy that's sitting on the ground. He's got his back to me. He's sitting on the ground. He's exhausted from walking about 14 days, then getting into a boat to come across. I made the mistake of walking over to this gentleman and saying, can I ask you a couple of questions? Knowing he was exhausted, knowing that he probably had not eaten in a few days, and I looked at him and I asked him with such great pride because I considered myself in this moment a Bengali, and I said, how does it feel to get to freedom? And I was not prepared for the answer that he was going to give back. In fact, the answer that he gave back has rocked me to this day some months later. It's still continuing to rock my brain. I cannot fathom what he had to say. And this is what he said as he peered up and looked into my eyes. He said, sir, to be able to gain freedom, I had to watch my wife and my daughter be raped by the boatman that brought us to freedom. You see, I did not have any money in my pocket to be able to pay to ride the boat to come across. My family did not have, we did not have chickens, we did not have rice to be able to give to the boatman. So what I had to give in order to get to freedom, I had to let my wife have sex and my 14-year-old daughter have sex with the boatman so that we could come and experience freedom. How do you think I feel about this freedom? And I sat there for that moment overwhelmed going, what am I supposed to do about this? How in the world do you answer? Do you even apologize? Can, can I even say I'm sorry? Can I even relate to what this man is doing? Because here's what I knew. I was going to get back inside my air-conditioned van, and I was going to drive to the camp. And then after I went to the camp, I was going to go back to my air-conditioned hotel, and I was going to sleep in a bed that was going to be comfortable. I have running hot and cold water. I have a toilet that when I flush, it does what I ask it to do. I was going to have three meals a day, and it was going to be no big issue. And I get back into the car, and I can't even talk. I'm just like, okay, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. And we drive to the camp, and I get out of the camp and walk around the camp, and people are talking to me. You want to hear a story? No, I don't want to hear any more stories. I'm done. I, that one story wrecked me. I don't know what to do. 
And as I got out of that car and began to look, I was at the largest refugee camp in the world. Kutapalong is the name of the camp, Camp 3 and Camp 4. There are 26 camps that are lumped in together that make up this one area. In fact, it is said that these camps will make it the second largest city in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is overpopulated, but this refugee camp will be the second largest city in the country of Bangladesh. It is the largest refugee crisis in the world that nobody knows a thing about. And it was as if I was standing outside of my car that day and I heard the voices of the 600,000 plus refugees that were just in Camp 2, I mean, sorry, Camp 3 and Camp 4, Kutapalong Camp. And it was as if God began to stir in my heart, Philip, what are you going to do about this? You've come and seen, now you can't just walk away. And I got back to the hotel room that night and began to try to go to bed. I took a shower a warm shower, it was incredible, and I, I get in my bed, my comfortable bed, got the AC cranked down, I'm just kind of going to go to sleep because that's just what you do after you've had a day like what I've had, and I can't go to sleep, and I'm tossing and turning, and somewhere about midnight, I finally fall asleep between jet lag and overwhelmed feelings of what's taking place. God, what am I supposed to do? Is there a bigger purpose in life? I love this country. I, I care about people. What, I've started a church, and I don't want to leave my church. I don't feel called to be in this country and be here as a missionary. All, God, what am I supposed to do with this? So finally about midnight, I fall asleep. At 1 o'clock, I'm awoken to, to just God just wrestling in my heart. And so I sit up in my hotel room. I'm by myself. My friend is in his room. And, and I begin to journal, and I begin to cry, and I begin to talk to God. I say, God, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, to, how to make this happen. I, I'm struggling with this. God, I, I saw this little bitty girl, and there's a picture that you're going to see. I saw this little bitty girl, and, and this little bitty girl is getting water out of a well that, that is just a hole in the ground. The water that she's getting out of that well is not even really a well. The water that's in that top-hand corner is so filthy, it's so nasty. I would not even give it to my outside dog. And I asked her what you're going to do with this water. And she says, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to use this to cook with. I mean, water that you would even give your pets. And I'm sitting up this whole night just wrestling, and I'm arguing, and I'm talking to God, and I'm crying to God. I'm going, God, I don't have anything. God, I want to help the next generation win. God, I want to be involved with the next generation. There are people in this camp that are the next generation. God, I don't know what to do. God, what am I supposed to do? And it was in that moment that God just kind of gave me a thought that I had to write down, and here's the thought. Faith, Philip, is an action. Faith is an action, you have a relationship with me. It is an action that you must take. You cannot just sit by and let this Rohingya refugee situation go by. You cannot sit by and not help the government that you grew up in, the country that gave you life, the country that is invested in you. Faith is an action, so you must do something. And I begin to journal and cry and talk and argue back and forth with God. About 3 a.m., this thought hit me. The most ludicrous of ideas. And you know, when God gives you a vision, sometimes it's so overwhelming, it doesn't make sense. And I'm sitting there writing and journaling and crying and talking to God, and all of a sudden, this number comes to my head, $10 million. <laughs> I'm a little Mississippi boy. $10 million is what I'm supposed to raise? Are you kidding me, God? How in the world am I going to raise $10 million to help refugees, to provide food, to provide medical? Uh, how in the world? I don't know 10 million people in the world. I don't even have $10 to my name. How in the world am I going to raise $10 million? And it was in that moment that another principle that God just kind of threw on my platter was simply this. Every number represents a name, Philip. Every one of those Rohingyas is a name, Philip. I know you know that. I know you're wanting to run from that. I know you don't want to be held accountable for that. 
Every number represents a name. Every name has a story. Every one of those people have a story. And then here's the kicker. Every one of those stories matter to God. So what are you going to do, big boy? Are you going to walk away? Are you going to listen? Are you going to allow me to work in and through you? Ten million dollars. But it was in that moment as I'm sitting in my room crying and arguing and debating with God, which I'm sure most of you have never done because only pastors struggle with God. I'm sitting in my room going, God, this doesn't make sense. And God says, but you know what? I care. And I sent my son Jesus to die for all of those people. I realized God cared and died for them. And I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, planted a church. The church is successful. It's growing. We're expanding. We're reaching out into all corners of the world. But God was saying, Philip, I've got a bigger purpose for you. I want you to help train the next generation. I want you to begin to to help your team. So I come back to the States. I sit down in staff meeting on Tuesday with my millennials, with all of my folks sitting in the room saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I know that I'm supposed to be doing this. And I want you, my team, to come and go with me. And do you know that every single one of my team members said, we want to help you. We want to be involved in this process. We want to cut you loose. We want you to be able to go. And so March, just last weekend, uh, March, April, the end of April, I I came back uh, to to the States last Saturday night. I'm still jet lagged, so forgive me. But I, I came back. I had been in the country for 16 days. I took two millennials with me to begin to see what happens. We raised money. On the first night that I put out the prayer request for $10 million, I had a $100,000 gift dropped in our bank account. I took $10,000 and took two guys with me, millennials with me, and we went over to Bangladesh, and we planted vetiver grass. You don't know anything about vetiver grass? I didn't have a clue about vetiver grass. But basically, vetiver grass is a grass that can grow in difficult conditions. You see, these refugees came in and wiped out the forest where they live. And so now they are are living on basically mudslides, and there's going to be slides. And the government began to talk to me that there's going to be 100,000 people that will die because of mudslides. I said, what can we do about that? Oh, well, we can build more houses. We can build greater areas. But if we have this grass, we can plant this grass all throughout the area. So in, in 10 days, my team went, and we planted 1.2 million saplings, tree plants, little grass seeds, that will hopefully rescue 100,000 people in the mudslides. As I was thinking about this and preparing for this, there was a thought that began to happen, that I want to be a man who is about raising the next generation, the leaders of the next generation. And I thought about this passage of Scripture, an incredible passage of Scripture that's found in the Old Testament. It's found in 1 Samuel. There's a guy named Eli who is the the priest, the leader in the temple that is there. He has an understudy, a young guy named Samuel who is there, a young man who who is trying to raise up as a leader. He's trying to understand what it means to be a follower. He's trying to understand how to lead. The, uh, the, the, the temple, how to be involved in the religious activities that are taking place there in his life. And, and so one night the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel that, that they go to bed, they rest, and Eli's in his quarters and Samuel's in his quarters. And, and Samuel all of a sudden hears a voice and he gets up and he goes running into Eli's room. He says, yes, master, you called me. And Eli says, no, 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 I, I did not call you. Go back to your bed and go to sleep. And, and he goes back to his bed, Samuel does, and he goes to sleep and He hears the voice again, and he gets up, and he goes running back into Eli's chambers, and he says, Eli, you called me, master. What what is it that you want me to do? He goes, no, I I did not call you. 
He goes back. He says, go back to your room. And he goes back to his room. And the third time he comes running. He says, yes, you called me again. And Eli then realizes something special is happening. And I want you to listen to what the Bible says. It's so powerful here in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. He says, then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. I, I love this. It, it's just a simple picture that Eli, the wise sage, the older individual, realized that in order to help the next generation win, I've got to help him understand that what he is hearing is not me, but the voice of God. Huge, powerful spiritual principle. But then he goes on, he says, so Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You see, Eli realizes that God is speaking to Samuel. Samuel now, it tells us in 1 Samuel that it says there right before this passage that Samuel did not know the voice of God. In other words, he was not connected in a relationship with God. So he was having a hard time knowing that that was God that was calling him. He had no idea, had never experienced God talking to him. It took the older, wiser leader of the temple, Eli, to be able to say, hey, Samuel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to your bedroom. And when you hear that voice again, because I'm confident you will hear that voice again, that when you hear that voice again, you will say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You see, here's another statement that I wrote down that is so powerful. You can't hear God because you don't know God would be the statement that I would say to many of us in this room. You say, well, that, that's, a, that's a bold statement. What do you mean, Philip? You can't hear God because you don't know God. Here's what I've discovered in the American church, that many of us have grown up in church. Many of us have sat through church. We were born nine months before we were born on this planet. We were born in church, and yet we know everything about church, but the real reality is that very few of us really, ultimately, honestly know God. And so, as I was thinking about this, it is extremely difficult to tell the next generation about how to follow God, how to listen to God's voice, because the real reality is most of us really honestly don't know God's voice, or if we can understand or hear God's voice. I, I told Paul on this weekend that before I move any further, I want to take a few moments with Rivertown Community Church across all of our campuses. I want to ask you to do something right now. I'm almost done in just a few moments. I want to ask you to close your eyes. And I want to ask you to bow your head for just a few moments, even across all of our campuses. And I want to ask you this question because I am afraid many times our church is full of religious people, but very few of us really know the voice of God. And that might be that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, you have come to be a part at one of our campuses right here. You have come. And today, for the very first time, maybe God is saying, listen, I want you to be able to know and to hear my voice. I want you to receive the gift of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right here, right here, right now. Just to pray a really simple little prayer. The words that I'm going to say are not magical. They're not special. They're just simply words of my heart that I would say to God in asking him to forgive me of my sins where I can receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And so I want to do this for us right now. So maybe you're here, you're watching online at our campuses there. You can just pray this prayer quietly, not out loud, just quietly in your own heart. And you could ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Let's do that right now. Dear God, thank you so much for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins so that I could have eternal life. Today, I receive Jesus' forgiveness of my sins, 
and ask him to live in my life. Thank you, God, for Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Hey, listen, if you prayed that prayer, I hope that you will tell somebody about that, your campus pastor. If you're in a small group, I would hope that you will tell somebody in your small group. If you're in inside out or transit, I hope that you will tell your leaders there, hey, listen, I, I prayed that prayer with that crazy guy from Mississippi, and I've made that decision. I, I want to I take the next step because I've realized that faith is an action. And now that I've got this faith, I've got this understanding that I can know God, that I can now take the next step. And then I, I had this thought. To help the next gen win, we have to help them learn to hear God's voice. See, there was somebody that came into your life. Maybe if you prayed that prayer this morning with me, I was the one that helped you be able to hear the voice of God. Maybe I opened the opportunity that God ultimately moved into your life and is going to change your story. But the, the, the way that we're going to help the next gen win is those of us who are followers of Christ, who have been followers of Christ, is to maybe help the next gen be able to hear and decipher the voice of God. Now, here's what I, I want to say to us. This is the last passage of Scripture, and I'm almost done. I'm going to give us four applications, and then I'm going to shut up and sit down because I know some of you are tired of following along with me. But I've had a great time with you this morning. But here's a passage of Scripture that, unfortunately, I have watched across the North American plateau and the plains be a passage of Scripture that, quite honestly, very few of us don't take to heart. Now, I know here at Rivertown and across our campuses, you guys take these words seriously. But it's written by a guy named Luke, Dr. Luke. He wrote Matthew, Mark, he wrote Luke, the book Luke. And then he comes back and writes the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, he gives us a powerful statement that is a statement to all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, many followers of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ have taken this phrase, this, this paragraph that I'm going to read to us, have taken this as an either-or scenario or I'm not going to do any of the above scenario. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is not an either either or option. It is not a consider option. In fact, the wording that you will see in just a moment is a very direct command for us as followers of Jesus to do. And here it is, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Those of you that prayed that prayer just now, I can't explain it. I don't quite understand it fully even in my own life. But the moment you ask Christ to move into your life, you ask him, you give him control of your life, God's Holy Spirit moves in and you receive his power, not your power. And then it goes on. And you will be my, what's that next word? Yeah, same thing happens at my church. When I say that word, nobody gets excited about that word. But here's what he's saying. You will be my witnesses. I want you to be my mouthpiece. I want you to be the cure for the human cancer of the soul that is dying and going to spend eternity away from God. You as a follower of Jesus Christ, because you have had your life changed, you will be my witnesses in. And then he begins to name the areas. Jerusalem, which was the area that they were in. Judea, which was maybe the state or the county outside of that. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Well, I mean, way out there. But then he does not leave off. To the ends of the earth. Now, have you noticed anywhere in this statement, he, he doesn't leave us an option of either or or maybe or if you want one, pick one, choose one. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is not an either or. This is not check off multiple choice A, B, C, or D. It's all of the above. It's all of the above. You want to put your faith in action. You want to help the next gen win. 
it's going to require you to put your faith into action. Four action points that I want to give us, and then I'm done. Number one, right here. Would you consider, this is crazy, I know it's practical, I'm just a practical guy. Would you consider getting a passport? I mean literally a tangible passport. Some of you today, would you go out, get online and discover how to get a passport so that you could be available, that when God begins to speak to your heart, when God begins to speak to your life, you would be able to say, like Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5 and chapter 6, Lord, I'm ready. Lord, here am I. I'll go whatever, wherever. I've heard Paul talk about it. I've heard other people talk about this idea. This thought of Acts 1-8 is not an optional either or thing. I'm going to get a passport. It's going to cost money. It's going to take time. But here's the reality. When you have a passport and Paul or somebody stands up and talks about a mission trip, you go, yes, Lord, I've got no excuse. I'm ready to go. When I hear that prompting on my heart, I'm going to be willing to go. So I'm going to challenge some of you today to begin the process of getting a passport to say, yes, Lord, I'll be willing. Number two, I'd ask you to consider going on one of the trips this summer, one of the two trips this summer on a mission trip with your church. In fact, we've got a little video I want you to watch with this. Part of the uh, theme of our Go Global uh, mission outreach is short-term missions, long-term impact. And that has uh, kind of a two-fold meaning. Of course, our short-term missions, our mission trips are usually on only one week uh, uh, to the different places we go. So in Costa Rica, we've been uh, going down. Our first uh, RCC trip was in 2011, and we went down in a partner church that we have there. We assisted in and building a Sunday school facility for the children there. 2016, uh, we ventured into reaching out into the indigenous people there that live in the jungle. The uh, villages in the Chirapo uh, area of the river, the village is called Colonne, and uh, the people there are Kabeka people, and they're a part of the Mayan descent. And so we went in in 2016, we asked, you know, what are the needs? How can we assist you here? And uh, part of that was they had a very inadequate water system. In uh, March of 2017, we took a team of youth from RCC and went down and uh, went up into the mountain, found the spring there, built a, uh, a reservoir to tap into that spring and ran water lines down to the, to the uh, village. And Ricardo said their next big, biggest need was for medical care. Uh, to get into the village is quite a uh, hike. It's a hike of uh, over six miles, but the biggest thing is a 3,000 foot elevation change along a small uh, trail that you walk into there. And so for the, anyone in the village to receive medical care, they have to take that three or four hour, 3,000 foot height uh, back out and then take about a two-hour bus ride to uh, get to the hospital. I'd just like to issue a challenge to you to come and join us this summer. On uh, We'll have two trips in July and uh, to go in and build this uh, medical clinic. And yes, it is a physically challenging uh, trip, but you can do it. Just come and have that opportunity to make a long-term impact. One, a long-term impact for the medical care in this village and partnering with them. But I think more importantly in that, a long-term impact in your own life of a, a chance, an opportunity to get away from the hustle and bustle of this world and get back there in that beautiful jungle and have the opportunity to spend time alone with God. And 
And if you can, if you can take a son or daughter with you, that's a great opportunity to have a long-term impact in their life as well. And, and so just come and join us on this trip in July. Get a passport. Sign up for one of the two trips. Some of you have the means, you have the ability to be able to do that right now to sign up. But maybe some of you don't. Number three, come back to our website and look for next year's trips. Maybe God has been speaking to you. And you've got to get your house in order. You've got to get your money in order. You've got to get some things in order. Come back to uh, rivertown.cc slash go and hopefully you'll be able to see trips that the team is preparing for you guys next year. But this last one is the one that I really want you to think about for just a few moments. It's, would you consider asking Jesus to show you who you need to be talking to? Let me explain. There, there, there are two groups of people that I want to close out thinking about this morning. There are some of you that are my age or older. You have life experiences. You've been able to hear the voice of God, and you could be a benefit to the next generation. You could help the next generation win. You could become the Eli to a Samuel that is in your life. Would you begin praying, older person, man, woman, would you begin praying, Jesus, would you show me somebody in the younger generation, somebody that I can begin to pour my life into, somebody that I can begin to pray about, that I can begin to influence, that maybe as a result of our relationship together, I can help them hear the voice of God. Let me talk to the second group very quickly, the younger generation. Those of you that are young, that, that are vibrant, you have an incredible heart, you have a passion for life, you have a passion for the world, and, and you want to go and you feel like old people slow you down, old people don't want to listen to you. They have crazy ideas and stupid ideas. Can I, can I just ask some of you that are young people, maybe to ask Jesus, Jesus, will you help me find a, young la- a, a, a man or a woman that I can begin to talk to? that I can begin to listen to their wisdom, that I can begin to listen to their experience, that I, that I can maybe come along and walk beside them, that I can do life with them and spend time with them. And through this journey of life together, I can become who you want me to be. Because here's the thing. At the end of the day, I want to grow in stature. I want to know, I want to be able to have the ability to be able to discern my greater life purpose. How wonderful would that be as an older person to help the next generation discover like Eli did for Samuel, to help the next generation hear the voice of God and to be able to send them off to do things that you would never be able to do. Young people, how awesome would it be to have an older person in your life that gets you, that understands you, that's willing to listen to you, that says, hey, I'll pray for you. I'll give you money. I'll help you. I'll walk with you and give you an opportunity to change the world. As I took my last trip, I took two millennials with me, two young people. And let me tell you, as a result of taking them with me, what has happened. A 31-year-old boy that went and helped plant the grass is now praying about the opportunity of moving into the refugee camp and living there and working full-time with a non-government organization to give his life up to serve refugees in Bangladesh. A young lady that was there traveling with us 
has decided that God has called her to go back to Bangladesh and to start a home for a lot of these children who do not have mothers. She's not married. She's divorced. And, and she thought God had given up on her, and she has decided that she wants to go back and start a home called the Reshma's Home where she can love the girls who do not have a mother, the motherless girls of the culture. She's 24 years old, and she's giving up her life for a greater purpose. Older people... It's worth pouring into the next generation. Can I pray for you guys? Oh, God, I thank you for helping me discover at times my greater life purpose and then to be able to help the next generation win by discovering their greater life purpose. I thank you for Michael. I thank you for Reshma. I thank you for the impact that you've made in their lives that now they're wanting to give their life to serve these people. I thank you for a staff team like my staff team who in their after hours of church work are working on Project DOS to help me get the word out, to help me raise money so that we can make an impact halfway around the world to people that they will never, ever meet. But now, God, I pray for all of our campuses. I pray for us right here in this room today that you would help us to understand you have given us a heart for the world, that we are to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Would you find us faithful in doing that? So, God, I pray for Rivertown Community Church today. I pray for Paul. I pray for their missions team. I pray for their local mission teams. I pray for men and women in this campus and also across our online campuses and our other campuses, God, that men and women would rise up today to say, God, count me in. I, I want to be a part of a venture that's larger than myself. God, I thank you for this incredible church. I thank you for my friend Paul and Melody and how you've used them in this church and these communities. I pray that you would continue to do incredible work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.